I'm an anthropologist and I'm currently living on Bundjalung country in the northern rivers of New South Wales. But most of my life, from when I was 20, I worked in the western desert on the Anangopitindari Yankundadara lands at the uh, northwest of South Australia. Diana James there, researcher and cultural anthropologist who first went out to the western desert in 1975. I went out there initially to be a community arts worker. Even though I'd studied anthropology, I had an undergraduate degree in that, I chose very deliberately to go out in the role of a learner. I decided that really that's what I had to do, was to learn from the people themselves and to learn their language. So it's pre-land rights, and it's the time when they were considering land trusts or what was the best governance situation for Anangu. At that time, in 75, it was still very remote. There was very much a feeling of being on traditional lands, observing that way of life. Hello, I'm Maya Haviland. Welcome to Collaboratory. Today, I'm honoured to bring you highlights from a very special and wide-ranging conversation with Diana James as part of our Collaboratory Conversation series, where we talk to co-creative practitioners about their learning journeys and histories and experiences of co-creativity in action. Diana's work exemplifies co-creativity. She willingly embraced being told to relinquish her white woman expertise and start with listening. And the work she went on to do over the past 40 years demonstrates again and again how different skill sets can come together to make a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Most recently, this has been demonstrated in the widely acclaimed Songlines Tracking the Seven Sisters exhibition, which drew on a large collaborative research project that Diana led and which has changed global understanding of Aboriginal songlines and the cultural practice and knowledge which surround them. In our conversation, Diana shares some of her early experiences of learning to work collaboratively and responsively with First Nations communities and leaders, experiences that laid down important foundations that enabled a project of the scale of Songlines to take place. She reflects on some of the back-end processes and agreements that underpin the work that got presented in the exhibition and shares practical insights about tools and approaches to navigating value and agency across the cultural and institutional spaces of a project like Songlines. Diana James is currently a research fellow at the Australian National University and also an honorary fellow at the CASM Centre for Aboriginal Studies in Music at the University of South Australia. And we began by talking about the country Diana worked in and the different groups of people living there. I was working on what are now called the APY lands, Anangul Pidendara, Yankundidara, and they are defined under the land rights that they got in 1981 as the region of the northwest of South Australia. So it ends at the Northern Territory and the Western Australian border. The fact is, traditionally, those borders didn't exist, and those people freely travelled with ceremony and through relationships and hunting and gathering and for various other reasons travelled well into the Northern Territory into uh, definitely up around Yankundadara country is there the traditional owners for Uluru and then uh, they were in the southern corner the tri-state corner there of the Northern Territory around Dropper River and it's where their country begins to overlap with the Nuritja who are a bit further to the north Arianga and Papanya 
the Pindabi, who are more to the west of Papania, but now living in Papania. And those countries, like the Pijandara in the corner of the tri-state border near the top of South Australia, moves into Western Australia into the Ngunnawal people. And then it goes right over to Roeburn in Western Australia, this big area that's been identified by anthropologists and linguists as the Western Desert Block. And linguists will say there's one overarching language group there, the Wadi language or the Western Desert language, and within that there are many dialects. When Diana first went out into this country, she was working at Freegon, a small outstation arts centre attached to the larger Ernabella Freegon Arts and Crafts. These art centres were community-owned enterprises, funded by sales and supported by the Presbyterian Mission Funds. It's actually a really good introduction to being on country. Bomar insisted that all new recruits go to a Pitjantjara language course run by field linguists and Aboriginal people themselves, first language speakers who came down to teach us language and culture and how to behave when we went up there. That was at Adelaide University and that course is still going. Part of the message that I received very strongly then from Wilf Douglas, one of the field linguists, was not to go out thinking that I had great ideas and, you know, it was a great new broom that would sweep through and do all this amazing things for people in a push, but basically that I'd be useless for a couple of years until I learnt the language. And my role was to shut up and contribute what skills I had, you know, whatever they were that people needed. And in that role, it was management skills and financial management and working out markets and assisting people in developing whatever they wanted to do. When I now look at it, it was a very good preparation for working collaboratively because I wasn't coming in as the outside expert. I was coming in with a certain set of skills that I could contribute to the mix, really. It was very clear to me that the women ran the art centre. Iwana was the boss lady. She had the broom and I didn't. And I did what I was told. <laughs> Basically, uh, learnt language, made mistakes and sort of got on with it. Once she learned Pitanjara, Diana retrained as a bilingual teacher and returned to the APY lands to support bilingual education. Based on her language skills and growing understanding of the aspirations of Anangu women, in 1980 she became the first women's field officer for the tri-state Pitanjara lands, working for the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, or DAA. Through this role, she became strongly aligned with women's wishes to be active participants in the growing regional Aboriginal land rights movement, which changed the course of her life. In 1980, Diana was visiting the community of Amata as part of her work with DAA, when she was stopped at a petrol pump by Nanacha, one of the senior cultural women, who summonsed her to attend a women's meeting on land rights. So I was called into the bush and a group of senior women were gathered there and they instructed me in their relationship and ownership of land and how they had to be involved in the land rights march that was coming up in South Australia in uh, March of that year. Uh, the Pitjantjara Council had just had a meeting but had ignored the women, so I had to go back with a message to the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and the newly formed Pitjantjara Council, the men there, that the women were coming and that they needed a bus. And uh, to DA had to release me to drive it. I had fairly strong instructions. <laughs> I'm telling all this because it really changed the course of where I was working and what I was doing. The women were very adamant and very clear about their roles, but my little report as a Department of Aboriginal Affairs officer, when I tabled it, shook that little institution. <laughs> and I was considered to be very radical, very feminist, and 
upsetting the boat, really upsetting the apple cart. So that direct message from the senior women and the fact that I brought it in and put it in an official report was actually very challenging for the male field officers. Some of them understood it or had been aware that it was there, but not that potently because anthropologists had not really written up the strong role of women at that stage. So there was still the myth that it was a heavily male-dominated society and women were very subservient. And that was influencing policy. It was influencing funding. It was quite devastating how that way of rendering how anthropologists had traditionally rendered Aboriginal society really fitted in with allowing a Western male-dominated patriarchal system to come over the top. The women were telling me that this was not traditional, not their way, and not the way they wanted to go ahead. Anyway, I applied for time off to drive the bus to take the women to the march. DAA refused on the usual governmental grounds that I hadn't worked there long enough to have time off in Luke, and so I promptly resigned. The women did get to the Land Rights March in Adelaide, although Diana had to arrange someone else to drive the bus. But this marks a reorientation of her work. She became part of supporting the setup of the Nananjara, Pitanjara, Yangkunkajara Women's Council, or NPY Women's Council, which was established in 1980. Over the past 40 years, the NPY Women's Council has grown to become one of the strongest advocates for Aboriginal women and their culture in Australia. In 1988, Diana started a new stage of her working life in the Western Desert, collaboratively setting up the first Aboriginal cultural tours that operated on the APY lands. In 1988, the Anganjara community, Anganjara and approached myself and my husband, Greg Snowden, to see whether we were interested in taking tours of people out there. So the way we discussed it with them was a joint enterprise. They were keen at their homeland because there'd been one tour through with the ACF the previous year and Gunninger and Iliajari both loved teaching people and at Gunninger they'd had a set up there for rehabilitating petrol sniffers where they had been teaching their own kids traditional living on country and they were very keen to have people from outside come and spend time with them camp out there and do these tours where they would teach about country. And so we established a joint enterprise where we provided the buses and the camping gear and did all the advertising and the management and they provided the story and the teaching and the place, sort of the content. So it was at that stage in my life, I was very certain that I wanted to be working with Anungu in a way that was a 50-50, you know, it was very clear what kind of energies both of us could bring to a business like this. So it was very exciting to start it off. People came out in those days, we were just camping in swags. And we had secondhand buses things that luckily passed muster with the tourism people. We were the first group to bring tours onto the APY land. So we were under heavy scrutiny by APY and by Anangu generally that the tourism didn't have a good history in that area. At Ayers Rock, as it was then known, Uluru, tourists could be quite intrusive and had been. So we had all sorts of controls that we established and under the permit system about what people couldn't, couldn't do, who came out. And they came up for seven days with us, camped in the desert, learned some Pitadara and Nganijidilijari, took them along the song line, told them about country, taught them some simple dance and song, and took them out hunting and gathering and really changed their whole way of looking at country and being in Australia. So I was involved with that company for 12 years. Greg left it after a couple of years, and we divorced, but I carried it on, and eventually in... Uh, 1994-95, Angaja wanted to buy it themselves, like to have it entirely as their company. 
And to do that, we needed to apply for Indigenous business funding. So went through a long process to get that, but they did qualify. Diana remained involved with Desert Tracks until the year 2000. Diana has been involved in some pretty big and significant cross-cultural projects over the years. The setup of the APY Women's Council, the Desert Tracks business, and as we'll talk about in a minute, the Songlines project. I asked her why she has chosen to repeatedly work in these deeply co-creative ways. It was a deliberate choice on my part, having studied anthropology. At that stage, it felt to me that it was, and it had been used as an arm of imperialism to justify othering and making other people subject to the rule of the colonisers for their own good and for all kinds of other reasons that people trumped up. (laughs) But it had been very successfully used to other and disempower Indigenous people in their own lands and denigrate their knowledges. And so I didn't want to be an anthropologist. I didn't want to be part of that system. The skills that I gained from anthropology in the end became requested of me by by Indigenous people I was with because those skills of recording, being curious about language, trying to understand connections between things, wanting to write things down, being a Westerner, always carrying around my little notebook and writing things down, and (laughs) being interested in activating. So why do this work is because it's exciting, because it's highly creative, because one can't just be an objective other. Truly, you're a participant but not just a participant observer, you're an active participant. And I know that's something that took me a while to recognize as being my position because one, as the intellectual training was to be the observer, just to observe. But luckily, from my father being a physicist, he'd also taught me that nothing that is observed is not disturbed. So the very fact of being in there means that you are an active ingredient now in the new thing that is becoming, just that your placement in there. So to recognise your own role and what you're doing is also very valuable because to be conscious of what you bring to something, one means you're less likely to trespass or unconsciously destroy existing material or culture or ideas, but also you're an active participant in what is not an uncontaminated ground. I mean, where we're working all over Australia has colonial influence and traditional influence, and this is an actively developing space. The arts and cross-cultural research, I think, has enormous potential for, one, bringing up the voices of the dispossessed, the subaltern voices, the voices we don't hear, because it provides a really legitimate and legitimising platform. So, let's jump forward a decade or so to one such cross-cultural research project, what became known as Songlines of the Western Desert, Alive in the Dreaming, and which in turn led to the Songlines Tracking the Seven Sisters exhibition. That exhibition was first mounted at the National Museum of Australia and has had huge impact in Australia and now overseas. How did a project of this scale come about? The Songlines project following the the Seven Sisters came about because Anangal from the APY lands requested assistance with recording song and story and dance of two of the major dreaming lines that go through their country. There's the Nintaka, the Perindu Lizard, and the Kungaran Cup for the Seven Sisters. 
If you want to know more about these dreaming lines and some of the places and stories connected with them, you can find links in the show notes to a range of media and information made by and with Anangu and others that open these stories up to those of us who are unfamiliar with them. But back when the idea for the Songlines project began, there was very little to share these big stories to people outside of the country they arise from. The people who wanted to start this were members of Anangu Arts, so they represented all the artists across the APY lands and right from the east, from artists in Dolkana right across to Pipilajara in the west, at all those seven art centres, people painted parts of these stories or, or their land and their association with these um, creation stories. So it was something that people were already painting and telling the story of. Both of these were already out in the public domain. They're called different names in different country and the song in the story changes into the local dialect. But the story is basically the same. A couple of younger women arts workers at Kaljadi knew of Nganinja over in the Man Ranges and the 12 years of work I'd done with her previously on Desert Tracks, which was her community's idea, her family's idea to invite people in, tourists to learn about the song lines and the two song lines they had taught were the Nintaka and the Kungurankalpa. So there's a big history in these being decided regionally with consensus really over some time about what could be made public from these Jukurpa stories, which are of course are very important and there are secret sacred elements to them. But they had been through a long process since 1988 when the tours started. Before that, people had been painting and making carvings and selling them with parts of stories. So people had been deciding about what was public and what was private. So the Anakwats felt fairly confident and their members wanted to augment the work that Nganinja and her family had been doing on their homeland at Nganinja, teaching people about that part of the song line. And they wanted to follow it right across the APUI lands. They wanted the opportunity to work with those artists from each community and the senior traditional owners who were asking to go back to their country, their associated sites with this song line, take their young people back, teach them the songs and the stories, which they said were being lost. So the request came through Uninquarts and initially it was just to do the one song line. They went to the Australian Arts Council to look for funding for that and were not successful in that funding application. So then they approached me because I was by this stage working at the ANU and was working on the Canning Stock Route. They approached me and they said, have you got any other ideas about where we can get funding and what we might do? So I looked at the model of the Canning Stock Route, which was a linkage project involving Indigenous and non-Indigenous partnership to bring about shared goals and also individual goals like the Maori people involved in the Canning Stock Route and the people up that stock route had their own set of things they wanted to achieve, as did the archaeologists and the researchers from ANU. So I thought it was a good model and potentially a way that we could get the sort of funding that they were looking for. For those of you who don't spend time on the inside of Australian universities, a linkage project is a grant from the Australian Research Council, or ARC, that supports universities to partner with non-academic organisations to do collaborative research projects. At that stage, I was in discussion with the National Museum of Australia, the Indigenous curator there, and 
they were very interested, but more interested in a well-known story like the Seven Sisters as being a bigger story. It fitted with the NPY's Women's Council involvement across the three states and also with my knowledge of the Māori women and their knowledge of the story and recording of it. So it came about through many conversations at different locations. 2010 was the first time when Anuku Arts went across the APY land seeking permission from the traditional owners to do the Nintaka. There was an objection there from one traditional owner requesting not to be included in the research. So that was agreed to and APY executive were happy with that. When the idea of incorporating the Kulgarankampo had been discussed again through Anuku Arts and having these different camps of discussion in Canberra and over with the Maru and with the APY, then, then that was taken to the NPY Women's Council to see if they would like to become involved. We were looking at this stage for other people to partner with Anunku Arts and ANU to develop it into a larger project. Putting this kind of project together is no simple feat. Relationships between individuals who know each other or have cultural connections, like Diana and her Anangu collaborators, or people in Central Australia and Matu people who share cultural connections to the Seven Sisters story over in the West, these person-to-person collaborations had to be formalised into partnership collaborations between organisations representing different parties to make the project actually happen. And these organisations work in different ways and are spread right across the country. As we will hear, getting agreement from organisations spread across the country takes a lot of legwork, and getting the right project design and governance structures takes even more time and effort. I brought it up when I was over Canning Stock Group with the Maru and with Kanini Pujukwafa, their cultural organisation over there, whether they wanted to become involved, the NMA was very keen to become involved. So at the end of 2010, we had a meeting of potential partners. I'd already put together a draft submission for the ARC so that we had something concrete to discuss and I'd drawn together what everybody had been saying to me and suggested a governance system that would make the Indigenous partners as equally powerful as the large research institutions, which generally hold much more power in these situations. So we had three days at ANU where we thrashed out a lot of this, talked about what the purposes were, what Anangal wanted out of it, what the researchers were looking for, how the cultural and intellectual property would be protected, and what public outcomes there would be. The partners that came together in 2010 were successful in their application for funding, and the ARC funded the project, coordinated by the Australian National University, for a four-year period beginning in 2012, although the project ran longer than that in the end. Once they found out the funding was successful, A partners' agreement had to be finalised between the diverse Aboriginal organisations representing the traditional owners of parts of the Dreaming Stories and the National Museum of Australia, known colloquially as the NMA. We all had to agree to the intellectual property, which was the most difficult thing to nut out, just because of the difference of the use that the institutions want to make of that intellectual property and what the Indigenous community might want to use it for or might want to restrict it. So that took about eight months of fine-tuning with the lawyers from all the institutions, and it did require quite a different approach from the ANU and the NMA. They could no longer have complete control over the information that had been gathered. A system was set up that we were tenants in common, so there had to be access for this material to be used by the researchers and in the exhibition. 
but there was a system of consents so that the Indigenous knowledge holders had to, at the point of collection of all material, consent to be filmed, recorded, and uh, have their material gathered by the researchers. That was called the stage one of consent, and that was actually in the field. Most people were happy with that. We did have some people who didn't want to be on film, and that was all accommodated. At this stage of the project, the systems that got in place had to address the long-term future of the recordings and the knowledge that was part of the project, including where it might be archived and how it might be used into the future. People could say at the point of recording, if they definitely had recorded this only for the Ari Iritja archive or their own Nanganadara archive or the KJ archive, and it was not to be even put forward for second consent for public use, they could say that. That happened in a couple of cases. And that was fine because that was also part of the agreement that while the researchers were there with the recording equipment and all the other paraphernalia, that that could be made use of by the community for their own ends, if they so chose. If it was to be used publicly by the researchers or particularly in the exhibitions, people were concerned about that. The second consent was not just that the raw material could be used, but it had to be taken back to people in its final form. So if there was a film to be used in the exhibition, it had to be taken back in the edited form and all the subtitles checked and all the inclusions and, in other words, what was the narrative that had been edited out of this raw material, what was going to be finally shown to people, had to be approved. And in most of those cases, there were people from the Indigenous curatoriums that we set up or the Indigenous Research Committee who were working alongside the researcher or the editor involved in creating these more collaborative products that were there deliberately to explain traditional knowledge or jokurupa in an exhibition or in a research paper. So that level of second consent is where the Indigenous knowledge holders really held their final consent about whether something went into the public arena or not and in which form it did. And, of course, they then had the right to use all the material, including the rough material, for any future edits or anything else they might want to do with it. That took about eight months to get all the partners to agree to because the university researchers were used to having control of their research material or what they considered to be theirs. And the NMA, as they said to us, usually we don't deal with this kind of copyright issue. We usually own the material or we license it, which is, of course, another way the project could have gone. But because they put a lot of money into the project right from the word go and some of their curators were also out in the field, part of the research, we needed to make the conditions cover all the material. I asked Diana if there were particular things that she wrote into the agreements and contracts that she would now apply in future projects or recommend to people as important to attend to when working across multiple potential future uses of material. The process we went through was complicated and it's also now complicated into the future in that if the material is to be re-edited or used again, particularly in any public exhibition, it does require going back to the community. Some of the people who were involved in the original filming have already passed on, so their permission cannot be gained, although most people did nominate their descendants as people who could give permission in future. The preparation of stuff for exhibitions, and particularly then when it goes into non-archiving institution like the National Museum of Australia, 
it can be in theory accessed at any time by any of their curators for talks or bits and pieces can be added into other exhibitions. So the use of that material within the museum is complex and I'm absolutely sure they have the intent of reconsulting, but it is a complex one. It's a very difficult issue for people because those who've been recorded, the elders will pass on, then what can be done with their material, what will might young animals themselves want to do with it, like what kinds of new technology or what might they want to incorporate. So the permissions we've got there in the second consents are, are binding in perpetuity. For new uses of the material in the public space, you must go back to the nominated Indigenous organisation who really have members who are traditional owners for that material. So it's not just the individual who might have been a senior person recording at the time because it's a communally owned jukurpa or a community owned song or story. Then the best way that we could work out was to put that people had to go back to the NPY Women's Council, or they had to go back to Alankoats, or they had to go back to APY or Madu, and then allow that group on the ground through their own permissions and agreements to work out whether this was a reasonable reuse of the material. Future proofing is something we talked a lot about. We did set up a governance system for the whole project the governance committee consisting of the Council of Elders who then formed the Indigenous Curatorium that worked on the exhibition, but only those, you know, the, each group from their specific uh, language area or, or place along the Songline, and then the Songline's project management, which was the people from the non-Indigenous research-based organisations. Everybody was represented on that management committee. And then we had subgroups for each part of the project so the Seven Sisters had a curatorium that was made up for the exhibition that had representatives from the three areas, the three main areas, the Maru, the Ngunadara, and the Pitadara, Yankwadadara. So there were three main areas, three main collections of songlines and story and film and paintings. On the curatorium for the exhibition, all three areas nominated people, men and women, who were representatives of that and had been on the governance committees right from the beginning on all the research project. So in 2012, when everybody had signed off on that, it started. The Songlines of the Western Desert Project had to build governance and intellectual property systems that integrated really different understandings and laws about how knowledge and the rights to its use are understood by the Aboriginal nations and by the Western cultural institutions partnering in the project. For those people who haven't worked with Indigenous knowledges, I asked Diana to talk a little about how cultural authority and the use of knowledge is validated and authorised in different ways than it is in academic or Western institutional contexts. Yes, it is quite different from Western systems of the rights to use knowledge. In terms of how I've had to deal with it in the position of being someone um, managing a large project like this, it's really to recognise how there is not a simple formula for it, for starters. There is not a pan-Australian Indigenous intellectual property system that you can write up and just go, yes, this fits this and we this works for everybody. That's certainly not the case. Across the Western Desert in different regions, people have had to evolve how they manage their intellectual property and their traditional knowledge, depending in each region a lot on what has been the impact of Western culture in their lands. 
the APY structure and the executive is, of course, is a Western institutional structure that's been overlaid on traditional. So you've got 3,000 square kilometres and over 3,000 people. And traditionally, they would not have gathered in a small group of elected representatives to make these decisions. People had very strong control over in ceremony of who was this, they everybody knew who the senior person was for that and, and who had the rights. And that did vary to some degrees to who was present at the ceremony and when it was performed and who was there. So it would be the senior person there at the time. They would not sing or give details of other people's country. There are lots of different stories related to the collaboration that wove the big public and cultural outcomes of the Songlines project together. Diana's role had to span so many of these scales, from closely attending to correct cultural protocol about who performed or spoke for specific parts of the story, to the legal negotiations between institutions about contracts and intellectual property. Holding all those different types and scales of work can inevitably come with some feelings of compromise. My one sort of regret is that because of the complexity of the project, I really should not have been in the position of project management as well as being the senior researcher on it. The simple management of the logistics of all the big trips to country, all the people we took out, all the vehicles, food, payments, the works, the management and the reporting that's required by the ARC, the amount of time that takes did detract from the amount of time that I would normally have spent, and I used to always spend on my other projects that were not so heavily externally funded and required so much management. I know that one of the ways that a lot of collaborative work is facilitated is by face-to-face being there on the ground, sitting and chatting with people in between the major meetings, in between the times when the big decision points have to be made. But because of the nature of this huge project, and the amount of management that was required just to make sure the funds kept flowing. You know, there was just so much work to do simply on that. I felt that the consultation side of simply sitting with people at Bush and being there for all those lengthy conversations about making it really clear to people what was going on and what's happening in between the big exciting trips, in between the big exhibitions and in between the big meetings, that dropped that that was one of the things that I didn't have enough time to do, in my opinion. But that would have required a manager sitting back in Canberra who had uh, an understanding and experience of working cross-culturally and with the two systems and could have handled a lot of that other management here. But that just was one of those positions that was extremely hard to fill. There were two aspects of it that, in retrospect, I would suggest are heavily emphasised and well-paid. <laughs> one would be the management the manager, and the other would be the IT, the management of all the recorded material, the videos, and the creation of databases. That's a big area, the archiving, and it needs to start right from the beginning. And the better it's organized, the better the transfer of all that material for people to be able to use. In a way, you're describing the dilemmas of doing research in a way that is also collaborative cultural action. When I've talked with people in community arts, people say this all the time, that 80% of the work is logistics, really, and relational and keeping everybody kind of moving. So there's both the practical side of that and then the relational side. 
But then also with the IT and the, the technological management, because we are creating cultural artefacts that have value to different people in different ways. So the long life and accessibility of them as recordings with all the decisions that are made around them needing to be attached to those artefacts. This, to me, is really one of the future challenges of the kind of research that is asked of us, actually, by Indigenous people, because people are very engaged with the question of research and knowledge for the future. But the forms that we work in then demand a different infrastructure, really. One of the wonderful things I've seen happen through this collaborative work together, the Women's Council is a good example is that assisting the women at that point where they needed a Western woman who did know, who had worked with DA, did know about the funding systems, did know about the governance systems, was not just a missionary or a wife of somebody out in community, but was seen to be somebody who could assist them to know the structures of power and link into it. Being there at that point to offer those skills into the mix has enabled that to grow into an extremely powerful wide-reaching, absolutely run by Aboriginal women. It's a very powerful voice for Aboriginal women. And that was the kind of catalyst, the mix that needed to come in at that point to break the way they had been excluded from those systems of power and access to funding. At the time, you don't know necessarily what the mix is going to bring about. You hope that you act sensitively and listen to people and contribute the skills you have in a way that enhances in these situations, particularly the Women's Council was one, but, but the Song Lions is a move on from that. It had the two aims. It had one for community and one for communicating about the traditional Song Lions and the sacredness of them to the external Australian population. You're hoping that what you do is part of that new mix and then it grows and it just goes out to the community and it grows. The Songlines exhibition was shown in several parts of Australia and is now headed off overseas on an international tour. Its success has been in both a global but also a very local way because it strengthened community bonds across generations through the storytelling and the honouring given to ownership of those stories. Part of the contract that Diana and the team had set in place with the Songlines partners, including the National Museum of Australia that is touring the exhibition, is that they contracted to make sure that some traditional owners be flown over and given time to speak to the sacredness and special stories told in elements of the exhibition every time it was remounted. That was one of the good, long-lasting outcomes of all the contracts that we did and all the negotiation that is done behind the scenes. Diana was in Perth, Western Australia, when the exhibition was remounted for the first time. In this case, because the elders... One has passed away, one is now too sick to travel. It meant that his niece and her sister could come. And for them, it was almost overwhelming. They'd never spoken in a public place about this story or this place. They were quite open about the fact they'd only been learning about it really fully and had had their appreciation of it augmented by participation in this online project. So they're carrying the spirit of country to that place and speaking to it. And that's one of the exciting things about this work. The lessons of the Songlines Project about ways to recognise the lines of custodianship of knowledge, stories and objects in the contractual relationships between groups and organisations could be applied elsewhere in other collaborations, such as that between visual artists and curators. 
What is the responsibility of cultural custodianship? What happens if you buy this art object, which is also a manifestation of a living, breathing jukapa? To whom does it ultimately belong? It's challenging to our institutions, which are founded on outright ownership and perhaps not set up to manage ongoing reciprocal relationships. I think that that is something that I personally learned quite a lot from the Maori and their Te Papa Museum, that when they take objects to even a regional museum, it is accompanied with ceremony and with the right people to be led even within their country, let alone when it's taken to another place. That's something that our institutions need to think a lot about because there is obviously, or in my experience, there is funding for directors of museums to travel to these international exhibitions. There is funding often for curators. So there needs to be funding for traditional owners or those of the lineage to go and speak to it because it is a living object and not just an object. This is a film and it's a living sacred space that's been created within that dome. And the only way to communicate that really is for those of that lineage to speak to it. Well, Diana, it's really an honour to talk with you, I have to say. Coming into the university and trying to navigate some of the work that I've done, it's been very, very comforting to both hear about your work, but to also know that there is this long effort to bring really collaborative cultural research to fruition through these institutions for better or for worse (laughs) and it you know it helps me a lot to hear about your trajectory and your insights about it it's very useful so thank you for your generosity it's okay I think you'll have more energy to um, actualize it (laughs) you know the next step is really making a bit of a dent a difference in the actual institution I'm not sure how much I will make that difference, but I can definitely word people up so that the people with influence can do it. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Get to them. (laughs) This episode of Collaboratory was written and edited by Maya Haviland and Nicole Dean, series producer Maya Haviland, audio engineering by Nick McCorriston and music made especially for us by Seprock. Additional research and production support by Nicole O'Dowd. Collaboratory is produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal, Ngambri and Ngunnawal people. We pay our respects and ongoing gratitude to the custodians, past, present and future of the lands on which we work and of the knowledges from which we learn. Collaboratory is a production of the Scaffolding Cultural Co-Creativity Project, hosted by the Centre for Heritage and Museum Studies in the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. Funding is generously provided by the Australian National University Translational Fellowship Scheme.